Let's bow together for prayer. Father, we pray that today will be a day in which we have come away and have been able to say that we have gazed on the Christ because we've gazed on uh, the revelation of Him in Your Word. We pray that uh, Your person and character and works would become sweeter to us in our minds and that the work that Jesus has done for us would fuel our desire to do more for You. And we pray that You would exalt Yourself through us. Help us now as we think about how to make wise decisions, that You would give us direction and and help us to think properly about how we, we can know what Your will is. We pray for Your help in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we're going to pick up where we left off a couple weeks ago on making wise choices. Um, the first step to understanding God's guidance is to first understand Him. Who is this God who is guiding us? What's He like? What are His priorities? What are His objectives in guiding us? If we can know Him, if we can know what He's trying to do with us, then it's going to be a lot easier to determine uh, how He guides us. In other words, if we can understand where God is leading us, what the ends are, then it will help us in understanding the means of how God is going to get us there. Many times in trying to seek God's will or making wise choices, we look in the wrong places and ask the wrong questions when it comes to uh, what God is doing, how He's leading us. But if we can understand a little bit a little bit more about the guider himself and the destination that he's taking us to, then then we'll know how to consider the way to get there, and that's what we're trying to do today. So last week or, or two weeks ago, we laid an important foundation that God is sovereign over all the affairs of His universe. The rise and fall of nations, the smallest details in life, everything that happens in the universe is controlled by a sovereign God. He has ordained, He has planned all things, and no one can thwart His plan. Not even us. He has a plan for your life, and He will see it through. And so today we want to kind of build on that foundation that God is sovereign and and set another foundation stone to the study of of knowing God's will and and how to determine um, where He is leading us. So where is God going with His plans? What purpose do the details of your life serve? I mean, are they ends in themselves? Does God give you a job just so that you can have a job? Is that the end reason? Is that the the final reason? Does He give you a spouse just so that you can have a spouse? Is marriage an end in itself? Or is there more to it? Does God give you money just so that you can have money? Does God give you a car so that you can get around? I mean, that's part of it, but, but there's more to it, isn't there? I mean, are, aren't these things that we're often seeking guidance in, you know, our job, our spouse, what kind of car, where to live, those kinds of things, aren't those things really a means to a greater end? Isn't God doing something much bigger than simply putting money in our pocket? Isn't He doing something much bigger than, than even um, allowing us to be married? And so, in order for us to understand this, we need to take a step backwards from the details of our crowded and busy lives and try to get a big picture of God and His motives for 
even the smallest of things in our lives. If we see things from God's perspective as what He's doing in the larger area, then, then um, uh, hopefully we'll be able to see things more clearly in the smaller areas. Before we begin, um, oh, you can turn to Romans 11.36. But before we, um, we get into the text, we're going to look at a lot of Scripture this morning. Before we get there, I just want to clarify two terms today. When I say God's plan, I mean His sovereign plan for the details of your individual life. Okay, God's sovereign plan, the, the plan that cannot be thwarted, what you don't know about your life. God's plan, that's what I mean when I say God's plan. Something that He has determined will happen and cannot be changed. God's plan. And then when I say God's will, I mean His moral will that He has already revealed for us and for everyone to follow. Now, the trouble for us in, in understanding God's will is that the Scriptures use the word will in two different ways. One, to describe God's plan, and one, to describe God's moral will. And um, so we don't have time to get into all that, but, but um, if you can kind of just keep that in mind for now, we'll uh, hopefully in the, ne- in the classes ahead we'll be able to, to discuss that in more detail. All right, so we want to take a step back, as far back as we can, to see three main points of what God is doing in your life to help you understanding what, uh, understand what He's doing in individual details. So let's go as far back as we can, and we want to first see that God does all things to glorify Himself. We want to see from the Scriptures that God does all things to glorify Himself. And then secondly, we want to see it more specifically. So how does God glorify Himself? And we're going to see that God glorifies Himself through His people. And then thirdly, more specifically than that, God glorifies Himself in you as one of His people. Okay, and as we, as we kind of focus in more and more on... on uh, actually, as we step farther back into what God is planning to do or what God is doing, and then as we get more specific about ourselves, then the, the smaller details of life make more sense. So let's, let's uh, look at this first one. The first thing that might be tough for us Westerners to grasp is that we are not at the center of the universe. We are not at the center of the universe. This, I think, is one of the fundamental um, changes that happens when a person comes to Christ. And, and often it takes some time for them to actually see it and be able to express this idea. And that is that we are not the center of the solar system. You know, the, the, just like the earth is not the center of the solar system, neither are we the center of our universe. God is. And once we determine that, once we see that differently, it changes everything. The universe exists to serve God. God is God. And, and all things are unto Him. Notice verse 36. For from Him, God, and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. For from Him, so He's the Creator, and through Him He sustains them, and to Him He deserves the glory that all things are made for Him. And so God here is is, um, exalted as the Creator from Him. The sustainer, he providentially cares for all things. We looked at this last week, remember, or two weeks ago in Ecclesiastes. Remember that, you know, all these things that are going on, 
life kind of comes and goes. People die. Generations come. Generations go. But God still remains. And, and we are to fear God. When we put things into perspective like Solomon finally did, then he started to see things with purpose, didn't he? He started to see that, you know what? My life is not meaningless. Meaningless. All is meaningless. Now it's actually purposeful. It's meaningful. And that's because that is the nature of things, that all things do exist for God. And we, life does not make sense. Our choices will not make sense until first we put God at the center or we acknowledge that God is at the center of the universe. You exist so that God would be glorified in you. So, you could put your name in the middle of this verse. For from Him and through Him and to Him are you. You could put your name in there. right? God made you, God sustained you, and you are designed to glorify Him. God does all things for His own glory. And really, you don't have to just put yourself in there. You can put anything that's created. Anything that's created could be listed under the all things. And it would be true. God does all things for His glory. His one supreme motivation in all of His acts of creation and providence is to bring honor to His name. All things exist and occur for His glory. So let's, let's flesh this out a little bit by looking, answering some of these questions here in your handout. First, let's get some uh, volunteers to read here. Jonathan, Revelation 4.11. Bill, Exodus 9, 13-16. Jennifer, um, John 17, 4. Matt, Isaiah 48, 9-11. Paul, Revelation 19, 6-7. And then everybody else can turn to Psalm 86. Psalm 86 for everyone else. We'll get to that here shortly. Lots, a lot more verses here that we're going to, um, then we're going to consider. So in other words, we're going to read some, but there are a lot more here that I put on your handout for you to, um, for you to uh, look up and and think about. But we'll just cover a few of these first. Why did God create? Revelation 4.11. Alright, so God created all things. He, he begins there by saying that, that God is worthy to receive honor and glory and power and He created all things for this purpose so that He would receive honor and glory and power. So why did God create? He created for His glory. Why did God, secondly, lead His people out of bondage? Exodus 9, 13-16.
Three key phrases at the end of verse 13, 14, and 16. It says, let my people go that they may serve me. And then I'm going to send plagues, verse 14, so that you will know that there's no one like me in all the earth. So that they may serve me, that no one will, that, that everyone will know that there's no one like me. And then verse 16, I have allowed you to remain in order, um, in order to show you my power and to proclaim my name through all the earth. So see what God's doing here in the Exodus? He's, he's releasing His people from bondage. He's allowing them to go into bondage. We could take a step back and say that. He's allowing them to go in and to, to, to redeem them, to save them, in order to make His name known. Not just to Israel, not just to Pharaoh. He's going to do that too. But He wanted to show the whole world. And we still talk about this story today. So we still... Um, are seeing God's greatness in that story. God le- leads His people out of bondage for His own glory. John 17:4. Why did God, um, why did God visit His people in the flesh? Okay, this is Jesus' famous prayer there uh, for us and for the disciples and us, and. Um, he says to, to his father, I glorified you on the earth. In other words, the, the reason I came to the earth, we could say he came for a lot of reasons, right? He came to save his people from his sins, from their sins. He, he, he came to serve, not to be served. We could, we could give all sorts of reasons for why Jesus came to the earth. But what he tells his father is the ultimate reason is I glorified you. And so, even Jesus exists to glorify the Father. Isaiah 48, 9-11. So here, God is speaking through the prophet Isaiah and He says in verse 11, it's for my own sake that I act. I am going to bring down judgment for my own sake because how will I allow my name to be profaned? I will not give my glory to another. See, God is all about promoting and magnifying his own glory. And then, uh, fifthly, why will Christ return in power and glory? Revelation 19, 6 and 7. Alright, so why is God bringing all things to consummation? Why is God uh, causing all things to be restored to what it once was? Why is God redeeming a people for Himself? 
and the answer is so that one day in heaven, along with all the other created beings, we will rejoice and be glad and give glory to Him. That's God's will. Okay, so from the, the largest perspective, what is God's will? The answer is that God's will is that all things will magnify Him. All things will, will laud Him and praise Him and glorify Him. Uh, you should be in Psalm 86, so let's look at verses 8 through 10. Psalm 86, verse 8. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any work, works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. This goes along very well with that passage we saw in Romans 11, that all things are from God and through God and to God. They are for His glory. To Him be the glory forever. You are great, verse 10 says, and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. So, from, from the broadest perspective, we see that God is busy working out all things together for His glory, not ours. And so, in order for me to understand God's will in terms of my job and my future and my needs, we first need to see that point. Because really, when we're always, when we're, let's say, let me say it this way, when we're primarily concerned about my job, and my needs, and my future, and my desires, then it's, it's subtly self-centered, isn't it? I mean, no matter how pious we make it sound, we cannot get sidetracked with a narrow, selfish vision of our lives where we only ask questions that revolve around ourselves. That's a bit vain. But instead, we need to rightly assess the state of the universe as being God's universe. This is my Father's world. And consider how all things revolve around God. Let's consider our lives and those big big decisions that we make as another element of how God is going to work to glorify Himself as the Creator. Do you see how that change in perspective might change the way you think about your decision-making process? You step back from all, all these things revolve around me, all, all these people, all these objects, these resources, my money, everything that I have. It's all about what it can do for me. And in fact, we go so far as sometimes to say that even God exists for me, which is technically not true. Okay, we exist for God. God is not our cosmic bellhop. And when we get that in perspective, it changes the way we think about how we make decisions, right? God exists to glorify Himself. Secondly, God glorifies Himself in His people. So let's get a little bit more specific because we don't want to just think, well, God's doing all these things and I guess I'm just left over here and I'll, I'll just do my own thing. I mean, the, the Scriptures are clear that God does glorify Himself, but He glorifies Himself in a specific way during this era and really throughout human history. He does it through His people. And so let's our, consider our, our place among God's people. How has God led His people in the past? I mean, how has He done it? What were God's motives in guiding His people? 
Maybe if we think about how God has guided His people in the past as their shepherd, then that will give us a window into how He guides us today. So let's just do a brief survey of the Scriptures and think about how God has guided His people. We're not going to look up all these texts, but but you probably even know what's going on in, in many of these just by looking at the reference. From the very beginning of human history, God has been shaping a people to be His own possession. Right? He... he he wanted to have a relationship with God from the very or he wanted to have a relationship with his people from the very beginning, didn't he? He met with Adam and Eve in the garden. He he had a special relationship even when he created Adam and Eve, right? It was it was much more personal, intimate than it was with the rest of creation when he just spoke some words. He formed the man and he formed the woman. And yet, even after they sin, they alienated themselves from God, but God did not stop pursuing a relationship with them. Instead, God goes into action to bring about their redemption. Genesis 3.15 is following the, the first sin of the Bible and, and the consequences that come from that sin. And we read in 3.15 of the promise of salvation that one of the descendants of Eve will crush the deceiver, Satan, under his foot. So here's God working to glorify Himself by redeeming a people. He's going to make it happen. He's going to bring them back into a a place where they can be near Him. In Genesis 12, we read of God's initial plan to form a people through Abraham. That through Abraham, all the nations of the world would be blessed and that through this Abraham, this seed of Eve would be the Savior of the world. Then in Exodus 2, um, 14 and 24, 1-8, we read about God remembering these promises after many years and then bringing Abraham's descendants into covenant with him through the law of Moses. And then in 2 Samuel 7, we read about how God's people will be given a king forever and that he will come, this king will come from the line of David. And then comes the climax of these promises in Jeremiah 31, that there's going to be a new covenant that's going to replace the old covenant. It's better because God is going to give us new hearts. He's going to give us the capability of being able to obey obey all of His commandments. That was not possible in the Old Testament. No one could perfectly obey the law. But in the New Covenant, when it is fully established in the kingdom, we will be given new hearts. We'll be able to obey perfectly. So you have that promise in Jeremiah 31. And then the New Testament shows that this New Covenant and the fulfillment of all these Old Covenant promises come to fruition in the person and ministry, the life, the death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. So, what has God been doing since the very beginning? He's been working to glorify Himself. When sin entered the world, He did not stop working to glorify Himself. God has been working to glorify Himself by uh, uh, initiating a relationship with His people and He has not stopped working to to build that relationship, to make that relationship possible. And so, the way that that happens because of our sin is through redemption. 
So here's what we can say. We can step back out as far as we can and say that God does every single thing in the universe to glorify Himself. Specifically with regard to His people, God glorifies Himself through our redemption. He redeems us. He brings us back into a place where we can actually stand in His presence. Where we can, as Hebrews says, come boldly before the throne of grace and find mercy and grace and help in a time of need. Where we can see His face because there's coming a day when we will be like Him because we will see Him as He is. God glorifies Himself. God glorifies Himself and His people. And then we'll look at the third one here in just a second. Do you have any questions or comments so far? All right. Thirdly, God glorifies Himself in you as one of His people. So do you see how we're getting more specific? Uh, not just that God has shepherded all of His people to be in a relationship with Him, but, but now we're going to look at, at ourselves and see how that's going to, to help shape our decision-making process. Because what we don't want to think is that you know God has big plans for Himself and big plans for His collective people but us as individuals, you know, we're kind of just left hung out to dry. We just, we're kind of just swept up into the bigger picture and, and carried along for the ride, and that's it. You know, we, we don't really have a personal um, place in God's heart. God's not really that concerned. He's really just concerned about the bigger picture. And that's not true. The Scriptures um, do not treat believers, the people who are part of the family of God, as cold and callous and unimportant in the sight of God. God does relate to us individually. And as we talked about last time, God has designs for our lives and He will see them through to completion. So let's think about this. Let's consider God, His character, and where He's leading us. And, and I think when we see the destination of where he, He's leading us to go, then we'll see how our decision-making helps get us there. So let me ask you this question. What has God clearly revealed to you regarding His will for you? What has God clearly revealed to you regarding His will for you? Okay, and the answer is not that, that He has revealed to you which city to live in, right? which job to have, which person that's going to be your future spouse? God hasn't revealed any of those things to you. Um, those are all part of, of what God is doing. But what are the things that are clearly revealed to you? And the answer is, those principles, moral truths, commands in Scripture of how we're to live. And these are what we ought to focus on when it comes to making decisions. We tend to focus on kind of, okay, I've got this one little path. There's only one path that I can get on. If I get off, then you know my life's going to be a wreck. And, and so I've got to find out what the secret path is of God. And what God's saying is, listen, the most important thing that I want from you is for you to do my revealed will. Okay, I didn't reveal to you which college to go to, which job to take. Those are important. We're going to get to that. And how, how to determine what, what, what the right ones are or what the best choices are. But, but what, is, what has He revealed? 
See, if we focus more on that, on what He has written down in His Word, then we're, those other issues are going to be of, not of little importance, but they're going to be of lesser importance. Hopefully you'll see that as we, um, we move through this series of classes. I, um, I don't want to get too far ahead of myself. So let's, let's see what kind, of, um, what kind of things God has willed for us. What kind of things do we know are true that God wants to do in us? Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. We'll look at the first one. It is sonship. And don't think, you know, that term sonship is politically incorrect. You know, we should, we should say childship or something like that. Um, sonship is actually uh, something that has very high value, especially in, in the Scriptures, because in the Old Testament it was the son who received the inheritance. And that's going to come into play when we look at this text, because it's, it's not just men who receive the inheritance, that is, believing men, Christian men who receive the inheritance. All of us, men and women, will be treated like sons of God, like the firstborn. That's the benefit of being called son of God or a child of God. That's why the Scriptures don't, um, don't kind of water that term down and, and, and um, change it. Um, so first, sonship. Let's look at verses 3 through 10. and uh, so, so follow along as, as I read, beginning in verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we would be holy and blameless before Him. In love, He predestined us to adoption as sons through Jesus Christ to Himself according to the kind intention of His will, to the praise of the glory of His grace, which He freely bestowed on us in the Beloved. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us. In all wisdom and insight, He made known to us the mystery of His will, according to His kind intention, which He purposed in Him, with a view to an administration suitable to the fullness of the times, that is, the summing up of all things in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. Notice verses 4 and 5. Here we see it's clearly stated that God has ordained from eternity past something concerning us. And what is it? What is it at the end of verse 4 that God has ordained from eternity past for all believers? That we would be holy and blameless in His sight. That we would... That Notice, He, he predestined it. He determined this beforehand. Verse 5, that we would be adopted as sons. And, and notice that, that this is said to be in accordance with, verse, um, verse 5, the kind intention of His will. The kind intention of His will. That is, the will that He has revealed to us, this is to be the design for all the people of God. That all people would be made holy, that all people would be adopted as sons, and that all people, and I say all people, that is all believers, would be made holy and blameless. So here's what we know about God's will for us. What He's revealed to us in His Word is that we are made to be children of God and to, to be made perfect 
eventually. And verse 10 gives the full reason of all this willing of God, and that is that all things will come under the Lordship of Christ. So that the summing up, verse 10 says, of all things are in Christ, things in heaven and things on earth. And so here's God's will for your life. Okay, God's plan for your life is that we will be united to our Lord Jesus Christ for all of eternity. So that He would be the Lord of all of His people in uninterrupted fellowship, holiness, and blamelessness. Sonship. Romans 8.14 says that all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. One of the additional benefits of being a son of God is that we are led by the Holy Spirit of God. This is the greatest form of leading that we can experience. It's, it's the leading that we need for moral decisions. right? All the decisions that are not clear in the Scripture then we can make wise choices because we have the Holy Spirit of God living in us. You might think, well, you know, what's so big about that? I mean, the gift of the Holy Spirit. Well, the gift of the Holy Spirit is what initially regenerates us and then, and then the Holy Spirit remains with us. And He is really the, the down payment of our future inheritance. He's the greatest form of guidance that we can have. And He doesn't give us answers through still small voices or messages in the skies. Um, he, he leads us through His Word. He leads us to be more holy and to, to, to desire good things. To desire good things. And that's critical in decision making. So first, sonship. Secondly, uh, God's will for us is that we will be, we will be heirs, or that we will receive an inheritance? In Romans eight sixteen it says that we are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. Okay, this talk of you can turn to First Peter, um, if you don't mind, First Peter chapter one. You know all this talk of sonship, and the fact that that we are treated like firstborn sons. Of a firstborn son of God is because we are united with Christ. And all the blessings and benefits that Jesus has as being God's firstborn son, we receive, even though we don't deserve them. The inheritance. First Peter 1, verse 3 says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, to obtain an inheritance which is imperishable, undefiled and will not fade away reserved in heaven for you who are protected by the power of God through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So here again we see God's plan for your life. It's not only that you will be a son, it's not only that you will have the Holy Spirit, but that you are guaranteed an inheritance. And the inheritance is grounded and what Christ has done for you, His death and resurrection, it guarantees that you will receive this inheritance. It's an inheritance that will never fade away. It's, it's an inheritance that cannot be lost or stolen. 
And so God's will is to keep you until that day when you receive that inheritance. That's God's will. That's where God's leading us. Thirdly, third thing that we know about God's will is that He is sanctifying us or and glorifying us. And He will glorify us. He's sanctifying us and He will glorify us. Romans 8 is a familiar passage, but it would be good for us to just fix our eyes on the text. Romans 8, 28-30. Would someone read those verses for us? Twenty-eight to thirty, yeah. We know that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God, to those who are called according to His purpose. For those things He foreknew, He also predestined to become conformed to the image of His Son, so that He would be the firstborn among many brethren. Indeed, when He predestined, He also called. All right, so here in verse 28, you should be able to see the larger picture that God is working to glorify Himself. Uh, He's working to honor Himself. And one of the ways that He does that is by providentially working in all the circumstances of life. Specifically, those who love Him, He works out every single detail in your life for your good and for His glory. God causes all things to work together. So fill in the blank of anything that happened this week or anything that's happened in your life or anything that will happen. Those, all of those things that have happened and will happen are instruments that God uses in guiding us to where He wants us to go. And, and where is He guiding us? Right? What is He trying to, to do in us? Well, the answer is in verse 29. And that's why these verses are so comforting. Because we can actually know why He's doing these things in our lives. For those whom He foreknew, He also predestined to be conformed to the image of His Son. So, do you see that word for in verse 29? Paul is telling us how all these things... Okay, right now you're thinking, you know, all these things, I've got a lot of all things that include bad things that have happened to me or bad things that I've done. And how can all of those be possibly working for good? And and Paul gives the answer in verse 29 by saying all of those things were used by the hand of the sovereign God to conform you and to conform me into the image of Christ. So here's the purpose. God's working to glorify Himself and He's using every detail of life to sanctify you. If you are a believer, He's doing that. Now, we sometimes use this verse out of context. We just quote the first part, God works all things together for good. And so we tell that to our unbelieving neighbor or family member or something. And it's not, this verse is not meant for them. Okay, this is for believers. That God is working to bring us into more conformity to Jesus Christ. God has predestined that to happen, the middle of verse 29 says. He has a plan to conform you to Christ. And the way that He's doing it is by sovereign, sovereignly working out all things together for your good and for His glory. But wait, there's more. The road of sanctification is good, 
but but we also know that it's sometimes painful. And so we we like earlier in the the chapter, Paul says, you know, we groan with the rest of creation for the end of all things. Verse thirty contains this promise that we will be glorified, that all of those whom God has justified will be glorified. Actually, it doesn't say will be. It says He also glorified. So He states it in the past tense in order to show that it's as sure as if it already happened. So if you said, you know, I've got some, I've got some ice cream at my house, and you can come over if you'd like, and I, I respond by saying I'm there. Okay, I'm actually using a present tense there, but, but, but the idea is, I'm not there yet, but it's as sure as if I'm already there because of the ice cream part. Okay, for God, He is guaranteeing that. He's guaranteeing that that we will be glorified by saying, those whom He has justified, He has glorified. Now we're not glorified, but but it's as sure as if it's already done. And so what's God doing? in all the details of our lives, from our jobs to our homes to our families to the type of tire that we buy, all those things are not an end in themselves. Yet, no matter how minuscule they are, God has a design for all of them to work out for His glory and for our sanctification and our final glorification. See, if we make these individual choices that we have to make, the center of our life, of what's most important, then it's not going to make sense. It's going to be like Solomon in Ecclesiastes. Meaningless. Meaningless. All is meaningless. What's the point? What's the point of this rat race? But when we see those minuscule details and the small choices of life in terms of the larger picture of what God is doing, working to glorify Himself through His people and through us as one of His people... And it helps us to understand that, that we ought to live for the glory of God. And so we're putting decision-making into its proper context. Everything happens within God's plan. And God will accomplish His purposes through us. There's nothing that we can do ultimately to thwart God's plan. I mean, do we make mistakes? If you said no, then you just made one. Do we make foolish decisions? Yes. Are there consequences to those decisions? Are there painful moments in life? Are there times when it feels like all is lost? But God is in the heavens. And there's no situation that catches him by surprise. And so that when we fear that someone else has done too much damage to us or where we fear that we have run too far off course, we've run our lives into the ground. We sulk on past choices. And we need to remember that our good shepherd is still leading us. Even through the valley of the shadow of death. His rod and His staff, they comfort us. So let's um, run a heart check on ourselves. If we are anxious over God's plan for my life, then either we don't believe in God's sovereignty or we don't trust Him 
to carry out his purposes. Listen to um, Nebuchadnezzar in Daniel 4. I need to turn there first. I didn't have it in my notes. Daniel 4, 34. When he finally recognizes that God is in control of all things, when he's finally brought to his knees, he says this, for his dominion, God's dominion, is an everlasting dominion and his kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing, but he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, what have you done? See, this previously arrogant, idolatrous, Jew-killing, God-hating, pagan king recognized that God was in control of everything. And if he can recognize that, then certainly we should With on this side of the completion of the Scriptures. Um... I don't know if I put this in your notes. Yeah, one other thing that that we know about God's will is that He has made us for good works. I've talked about this in a number of other settings, so I'm not going to um, spend any time on that. Ephesians 2, 8-10 is a good passage to consider. So how does this affect our decision-making process? Well, when we recognize the goal where God is taking us and the means of how He's taking us there, then it, it actually helps us to be like Paul. To, to put things in perspective, in Philippians 3, he says, not that I have already obtained or have already become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that which also I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Then he goes on to say in verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Paul, God already has it all ordained. It's all taken care of. So you can just kind of just relax and do nothing. No, he says, because God has a purpose for me and because God is working out that purpose for me, I'm going to submit myself to his purposes. I'm going to lay hold of what he is laying hold of in me. Do you see? This is how it affects our decision-making process when we understand the, the sovereignty of God and how it works, uh, how we must work in uh, conjunction with that, that is that, that we must submit ourselves to it, then our pressing on towards the prize which is in Christ Jesus becomes the motive for our decision making. Our pressing on toward the prize which is in Christ Jesus becomes the motive for our decision making. So that God who delivered up His Son for us would happily, freely, and does freely give us all things. And so we don't have to fear. Matthew 10 is the passage where Jesus says, Don't fear those who kill your body. Fear Him who can kill both body and soul in hell forever. And as Christians, we have nothing to fear because there is no condemnation that we dread. There's nothing that can separate us from the love of Christ. And so, we can be sure that nothing in this life or even death can separate us from what God is working to accomplish in us. 
So as we think about divine guidance and decision-making, we need to, as best as we can, think like the divine guider. So here, here's where we're going to start coming more into focus over the next several weeks, and that is that God has a plan for us. God has revealed to us what's most important in our lives. So let's start submitting ourselves to God in those ways, and then we'll, we'll talk about all the things that aren't clear in the Scriptures as far as you know, which job to take and so on. Our decisions are not ends in themselves. They serve a greater need. God is working out everything in order to glorify Himself. And so our job is to make God's priorities our priorities. And that's what we're going to talk about here in the next hour in Colossians 3. We're going to make God's priorities our priorities. We need to set our affections on things above, not on the things on the earth where, you know, um, you know, to borrow from another passage where moth and rust corrupt, the things that are passing away. Our primary focus is on our union with Christ in heaven. So that whether we eat or drink or whatever we do, we do it all to the glory of God. All right. I've gone well over time. Do you have any questions or comments briefly? Melissa. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that's that's exactly where we're going. Um, all these other things will be added unto you. And really, those other things are, am I going to have enough food for my next meal? You know, because that's in that same passage, Matthew 6, is where Jesus is calling people to stop worrying about, you know, your clothes and your food. And these are necessities. And he's saying, listen, seek my kingdom first. Seek, seek what's most important first, my priorities first, and then all these other things will fall into place. And um, so, yeah, that's where we're going. All right, good. It's good to be reminded of the foundation here. Probably nothing new that you heard today, um, but, but good to be reminded. I know for myself it was as well. So let's pray and, and we'll be dismissed. Lord, thank you for uh, your sovereign rule over all things. Thank you that you do have a purpose, that this world is not in utter chaos. In one sense, it is in chaos, but only temporarily, and that you are bringing all things into order. And that as we follow your will and your, your desires, um, we can uh, find peace and we can make sense of things that, that seemingly have no purpose to the watching world. And uh, we know that because you're working out all things for your good and you're conforming us to the image of Christ. Continue to do, to do that, we pray, and help us to rely on you through the process. In Jesus' name, amen.